This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. This episode, I spoke to former NASA astronaut and engineer Nicole Stott. We spoke about Nicole's time in Earth orbit and how her experiences on the Space Shuttle and the ISS might give us all hope for the future of our home planet. Yeah, hi, I'm Nicole Stott. I am a retired NASA astronaut, artist, mom, uh, founder of the Space for Art Foundation. And now I can claim author of the new book, Back to Earth. <laughs> yeah, th- thanks very much for, for joining me on the podcast, um, Nicole. It's, it's, it's great to have you on. And one of the really interesting things that about um, having you on with regards to your your new book, uh, Back to Earth, is that most of the time when, when we have... Uh, an astronaut on the podcast or or an astronomer they're sort of looking outwards to to space and what life is like in space but but your book's very much looking looking back to planet earth isn't it yeah absolutely and and i think even when we're in space we're spending a lot of time looking back at earth and reflecting on that and to me i wanted to write something about how just this really wonderful way that we've been living and working as this international community in space on the International Space Station for over 20 years. The ways we do that are such a perfect example for how we should be living like crewmates here on Spaceship Earth. Yeah, and I suppose one of the things that that I think about anyway when I sort of think about it in that context is, um, and you do talk about it in the book, is what every astronaut says when they go in the ISS is that 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 first time that you see 
Earth. I, I was wondering if you could describe what that was like for us. Where, where were you on the ISS and, and what were you doing when, when you first saw, you know, the uh, blue disc? So for me, my, my first view of Earth from space was actually from the space shuttle Discovery because I, I rode to the space station on Discovery and I have to tell you, I don't remember where on Earth it was. <laughs> I just remember being... I don't know. And I think we all try to prepare ourselves in some way. You know, we talk to our friends who've flown, we look at the pictures and videos, we know it's going to be awesome. And yet I remember just being, really being awestruck. Like, first of all, floating in front of that window of like the overhead window, one of the little overhead windows on the space shuttle. And just being in awe of the fact that I was there, that I was floating inside a space shuttle in space, like how how could that be possible? And then to be presented with this overwhelmingly impressive view of Earth in a way that I didn't, I just lost like where we were. It was daytime, I remember that. It was blues and all the blues that you know of and then blues I think I'd never maybe had seen before, just glowing, iridescent, crystal clear, all of those things that I'm sure you've heard from other astronauts as well. And just this sense of like, man, I'm, I'm here on the space shuttle floating in space. The furthest I've, you know, at least at this point, been from Earth and feeling so connected to everything and everyone I saw, you know, that I knew were down there. And just then this sense of interconnectivity, like, wow, we live on a planet. Holy moly. You know, we don't think about that very often. This like, I'm looking at a planet and that's my home. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. There's a great um, bit in the book where you sort of describe how you explained it to your kid. I think it was seven and it asked you it was something, something about yeah. a light bulb. But what was that? Yeah. And that's, you know, my son, uh, Roman, was seven when I flew the first time. And... And I mean, you feel like a kid when you're there. You're trying to come up with these ways, you know, simple and perhaps philosophical, you know, to, to describe what you're seeing, what you're feeling. And for him, I, you know, I was talking to him on the on the phone, you know, through our little radio thing. And I, I just asked him, I said, okay, Roman, I want you to close your eyes and imagine that you have you have the brightest light bulb you've ever seen and you've splattered it with all the colors that you know earth to be and then you turn it on and when you turn it on you have to open your eyes you know kind of peek your eyes open slowly to adjust to the light of it to how bright it is to this just glowing contrast of the colors all lit up against the blackest black you've ever seen <laughs> And it's moving. And that's what Earth looks like from space. And, and that is the way I, I tend to think about it, too, is in that really simple way of just the, the brightest, glowiest like view of all these colors that we know Earth to be. Can you, um, can you actually make out what you're seeing on Earth? Because obviously, like, you know, if you look at a map, you can see borders and labels and that sort of stuff. But given the lack of borders and labels actually on the Earth, and given given the curvature versus a, a 2D map, can, can you actually tell what what continent or what country you're looking at? Yeah, generally you can. I mean, there's times when you're over like the mass of 
you know, like um, Asia and Siberia, you know, that area, and, you know, out of Europe and, and to the to the east. And then when you get over, you're like right over the midst of the United States or something. But um, what was really cool to me is you can, you can make out, you know, shapes of continents and, you know, Florida for sure in the U.S., you, there's no denying it. There's places that there's just like no denying where you are when you're flying over it. But what was cool to me is that over time, you start to get to know the geography of the planet without looking at the map, by just looking at the Earth, the places relative to where you're looking at, and the colors and patterns of of where you're looking at. Like, I remember one day realizing, like, man, I can tell the difference between the deserts in Australia and the deserts in Africa just by the the way the colors blend together and the patterns of the sand. And I mean, I tested myself and we would test each other about, you know, who could say first where we were over the planet. And a lot of it just had to do with patterns and colors, which is really cool. That is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really interesting what you were saying about um, suddenly realizing, realizing that you're looking at a planet. It's, it's something I found <laughs> even just my sort of very primitive interest in space and astronomy. Sometimes if you're sitting in your garden and you see a bird landing on a fence, you think, we don't know of any other planet where that's happening. Being an astronaut must just give you that a hundred times. It, Yeah, there's so many things about, and even like now when I'm sitting in my backyard in my garden, looking at the birds, looking at all, all the way the water moves, all of these things that really, I don't know, just really bring to life how special, you know, this planet is, the the who and where we are in space together, how really brilliant and extraordinary it is. And to look at it from space, certainly, I mean, seriously, that first, that first view out the window, I'm like, oh my gosh, we live, we live on a planet. And we don't, we learn it, what, when we're in kindergarten, you know, your, your child is very soon going to know that, we, that we live on a planet. And <laughs> I want you, and I think you will, like keep that in their mind with them, you know, so they're reflecting on that on, on a daily basis. It, I mean, that happens to me every day now. And, you know, you mentioned that bird like landing on the fence or something. It's like, okay, our planet, and you know better than me than numbers, you know, we're, we're rotating, what, at about a thousand miles an hour and our planet is orbiting the sun at, I never get this, like 67,000 miles an hour. Is that about right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And <laughs> and I'm like, and yet the bird just flies down and lands on the fence. It's not like it's having to like pace itself, you know, to land on the fence. It's just, it's just who and where we are and how beautiful that is that it's where we're supposed to be. I mean, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be exploring and finding out where else we can be, but it's like this real significance to it in, you know, in where we are, in this place that we are so perfectly, you know, this perfect distance from the sun and this life support system, everything about it that's meant to take care of us and and how we figure out to do that in space, on a space station where we've mimicked as best we can what earth does for us naturally and yeah and yet i think we really need to look at that space station as a way to say okay we know how to take care of our space station in space and we know how to be aware every day of how much co2 is in our atmosphere and 
clean drinking water we have and all of these things that are critical to our survival. And we need to start applying that same thing down here on Earth. Yes, that's definitely what what, what sort of comes across in the book is that um, it's obviously a celebration of Earth, but would you say it's sort of a also a bit of a maybe warning and also maybe a sort of call to action because it's not sort of fo- just focusing on the beauty of Earth, but it's also focusing on the sort of potential effects of uh, climate change that we're already seeing and and how we can help mitigate or or even stop those 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 changes from occurring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I I really hope that anybody that reads this book will will walk away you know, in one way or another with a call to action for how, you know, for their role as a crewmate, you know, not as a passenger on on Earth, on Spaceship Earth. And um, it's certainly intended to kind of highlight some of the issues that we're having here on the planet, you know, and a lot of them as a result of how we, you know, interact with the planet, with each other, you know, just the way we've come to, um, to live here. And at the same time, while not wanting to, I mean, I don't want to under, underplay those issues in any way. And climate change became the one that was, I think, just really the most appropriate to showcase as, you know, as something that could be, I believe, solved, um, managed, taken care of by us. Uh, if we use this model of how we're living and working on a mechanical life support system in space and apply that here. I mean, there's an, any number of challenges we could have, you know, could have talked to in the book, but I think climate is the most appropriate. I think it, um, you can bring it to life a little bit better by uh, contrasting this view of what we see of Earth from space to what we know of what's happening here on the planet. And then I think that the opportunity to also showcase some of the wonderful work, I mean, really extraordinary work that's going on in space on the space station, where everything we're doing is ultimately about improving life on Earth, but also how those things are applying to life on Earth and the amazing people here on the planet already that are living like crewmates and doing their best to, you know, lift us all up and make things better. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting that you're saying about um, work on the ISS, sort of looking back to Earth. Because again, if I think um, um, a lot of people might see the ISS as sort of a stepping stone to further space exploration. But but are you sort of saying that it's it's not just that, or or it's it's not even that? It's it's lots of the science science and 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 the technology that's developed on the ISS and, and done on the ISS is it is actually making making life better on Earth in in, in terms of um, sort of um, climate change mitigation and and beyond? Yeah, and I would say, yeah, and beyond. I think um, it's one of the things that I found so compelling and so, I don't know, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to be an astronaut, why I wanted to fly to space. And, you know, how this timing of the International Space Station worked out to be my time for that. But it's because... I mean, I believe even the earlier stuff we've done in space and whatever we're thinking about in the future for space, ultimately, in one way or another, is about improving life on Earth, is about like elevating humanity in some way and all life we share the planet with. And uh, the space station certainly is that. I mean, everything we're doing there, whether it's the way we've built the station, the way we generate our electricity or 
um, create or clean our water and manage it uh, is in some way or another helping us do those same things here on the planet. And the science as well. Everything about every experiment is um, is helping us improve life on Earth and might also be helping us explore further off the planet. And I say it that way. I used to say it in a way that was like, everything we're doing there is helping us explore off Earth and also benefiting life on it. But I discovered in my interview with uh, Serena on and Chancellor that she told me something I had never heard before, which was that 70%, I think that's the number she gave me, 70% of the medical kind of the medical research that we're doing on board the space station is first and foremost about something that applies here on earth that then could help us in space, but was purposefully done is purposely happening in, in this microgravity environment on the space station, because it can better help us develop whatever it is we're looking at um, for what we're, what we need on earth. And that to me was like, holy moly, (laughs) I mean, I always thought it was fantastic. You know, we've got this dual purpose going on with everything. And yet some of it is very purposefully all about what we can do here on Earth to improve things. And then we're discovering the things that can help us in space with it, too. That is really, that's very cool to me. You don't find a whole lot of stuff going on like that, you know, in any other industry environment. And um and I like I like that we're having this conversation today because I hope people who might not like me too might not otherwise know that will discover that and then will become intrigued and want to know more about what's going on on what I think is the best example of international cooperation we've ever you know come across with this international space station program. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Yes, definitely. And the other thing I suppose that you think about the ISS is just because it's that enclosed environment, there isn't any room 
for wastage. So that means solar panels and, uh, you know, recycling urine to make it drinking water and, and yeah. things like that. Um, would, would, like, would you say that that's right? I mean, it's, it's sort of almost like a, a sort of self-sustaining relatively clean reuse, reusable environment isn't it <laughs> i i would say it's i would say it's the best example of living off the grid that you can find <laughs> it's i mean seriously um you know all of our power is i mean you see if you see the you know the pictures and videos of the space station it's just looks like this masterpiece like this work of art you know circling the planet and this gorgeous kind of golden copper um, look like wings on the station almost the the solar panels that yeah they're just sucking in all that solar energy and um and we're storing it and using it for everything we need to run the space station it's not like we're plugged in somewhere else or there's a you know a, a coal burning plant somewhere on the station that's supplementing that it is all powered from the sun and um and all of our water for the most part i don't know that there's any resupply anymore maybe on the russian side just to supplement some of their systems but i think for the most part we are all like internally sustainably maintaining the water supply on board the station and and that's everything like you said from the clean drinking water that the humans you know need to survive to the technical water for the cooling and the other action on this on the station and the the filtration systems we use to clean out all the you know what could be the icky stuff in the air because we are we're like it's like living in an air-conditioned room for you know months at a time and you have to recycle and filter you know the air that you're breathing and maintaining the level of carbon dioxide um every day you know either as a crew or the team on the ground you're like okay what are the co2 levels because they know that's not a cool thing to have elevated inside your space station, right? You know, that's everything from getting headaches and getting really irritable, you know, on the low level to, you know, potentially risking your life um, at the higher levels. And that's a really simple way of saying that's the same thing that we have going on here on the planet. You know, it's kind of invisible to us. So, you know, we don't tend to think about CO2 as this real thing, until the reality of it, I guess, the, you know, through stuff like climate change and where in our own backyard, you know, storms are heavier and more devastating, water rising, temperatures rising, these things that become visible to us start to come to life that that we react to them. And I, I really want us to think proactively. Mm. And that's what we're doing on the space station. We're like, okay, we don't want our CO2 levels high, so we're going to do these things to make sure they're not. Yeah, there are definitely, I mean, as you said, there there are so many lessons to be learned from the ISS. And I think it's it's sort of like the, the immediacy of the situation, isn't it, in comparison to what life is like for us every day on Earth, you know, the hustle and bustle, and we, we don't always think about it. But do, do you think that just just because we can learn those lessons from the ISS, do, do you worry that we we just we just won't? <laughs> I, I mean, I think there's always that worry there, but I, more and more I see, you know, just like even around me in my local community. And I think that's where people can really, you know, you figure out how um, you become more aware of things, right? And when you become more aware, what do you do with it? Okay. What do you do with it in your own life? And I always hear stuff like, you know, well, if I just, 
you know, I stop using plastic straws or I manage the water better in my house or I do these things around my own, you know, what's that really going to do? Well, it's going to do a lot because it's, you know, it's kind of like my friend Guy Liberté in the book. He's like, you know, we really can one drop at a time um, have an impact on the bigger scene around us. And I think we all have to look at ourselves as that that one little drop that's going to cause this ripple. And I mean, I've seen it myself in, in my own home. I'll, I'll decide to make a change. And my husband and son will look at me a little weird at first. And the next thing you know, it's it's like, oh yeah, that's that's cool. We could do that. And then you find yourself wanting to know about more about how the community, just your local community around you is dealing with these same things. And it encourages you to like investigate that. And I think that's just those little ripples heading out. And, and my, my hope is that um, those kinds of things rippling um, and us taking action to make that happen are going to be a big deal. And that in my research, the scientists still have hope right? They still have like this thin blue line on their charts that say, we can, wor- we can work in a way that helps us maintain, you know, sustain, and then, you know, help thrive um, life here on earth because we can do these things. And I think we're always going to be in a place to do that. And, and already through time, we have, we've seen big changes happen, whether it's in the way food is produced and, you know, access to communications are made possible or um, clean drinking water. I mean, the reality, these things are happening across the planet. And I think more and more, it's just going to be, it's just going to continue. And I have to hold hope for that. You know, I have a 19-year-old son that I, I want him to live on a planet where he can thrive and where he's part of the solution. And um, I, th- I think it's possible. Yeah, that, that was one of the one of the um, other uh, parts of the book that really um, hit a chord with me was um, the sort of uh, you talk about there. Some, you can get overwhelmed by the sort of the prospect of climate change, and there can be almost a sort of sense of just defeatism and and giving up. And I think you'd also sort of said that you at one point felt like that as well. You know, is there is it, can Earth be saved? How, how, how did you actually? Go from that pessimism to the sort of more proactive optimism that you that you that you're displaying today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think I came into it with uh, with a very um, I don't know realistic optimism kind of thing. You know, I, I have a very positive attitude about it, um, so I think that was helpful. Um, but I'll tell you, you start like reading article after article or paper after paper about what's what's happening around us and i mean there were times literally where it was like oh my gosh where i was feeling the same thing that people were talking to me about like you know what can i do i might as well just live my life and you know um i, I think at some point is you know like hug my son go out in nature and ex- you know experience it while we can you know before it's gone and then i was like you know you cannot not we we cannot get into that mode right and I, I don't I don't know if I physically slapped myself you know mentally I was like you know stop it because the motivation behind this book was you know we need to lift each other up with the examples that are out there already that have been really really successful and we all can leverage those in some way and even in the research in the papers where it was like 
oh my gosh, every insect is going to be gone before, you know, my son graduates from college. And there was hope in there about what we can do to counteract that. And um, I, I, I just believe, I just want to believe that, you know, that we, that we want to survive, that we want our children to thrive, that we want to be able to, to know that, um, you know, our legacy is going to be that, that my kids, their kids, you know, and on can look out and see green grass and water flowing and be able to walk outside without a spacesuit on. You know, the last thing we want to do is turn this planet into, you know, in, in reality, into a spaceship where we're having to behave like we do, um, you know, in some of the ways we have to on a space station or we're going to go into Mars where the planet's not welcoming us. We have to, we're, all we're doing is thinking about how do we turn it into this, you know, to this, um, this garden that earth is for us. And, um, I don't know, I'm rambling because this is, this is, there's a passion about this, you know, to me is that we, we really do have the power, you know, to create a future for ourselves here on earth and for all life on earth. That's as beautiful as it looks from space. And we should feel compelled to do that, you know, in our own homes, our communities, and let that ripple grow. Yeah, I mean, there was there's a, um, another great moment in the book that I uh, enjoyed reading about, and it was um, which sort of exemplifies that sort of uh, collective endeavor, and but also the, the sort of calmness that's perhaps required. It's it was and it was quite quite shocking to read is when you were, you were awoken in the middle of the night by what sounded like a smoke alarm. Yep. <laughs> what, what? Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. must have been well, terrifying. That gets your adrenaline flowing. It does, <laughs> you know, and and it and it happens you know, fairly regularly with whatever level of alarms, not always the emergency alarm happening, but yeah, you know, we train, we train as crew, you know, down here on earth to, I mean, they're throwing emergencies and stuff at us all the time because, you know, in that place you want to, as much as humanly as possible to be able to respond to whatever's happening and to get back to a safe configuration. And then from that point, figure out, okay, how now do we keep that from happening again? And yeah, I see it kind of like where we're at here on Earth is that, you know, the alarms have been sounding, you know, big time. We're starting to see, visibly see on a more regular basis, not just the alarm sounding, but the like in your face reality of it. Right. And so now we are in that same position where we need to rally together and get ourselves back into the safe configuration right? Where we can then all say, okay, now what do we do to bring it back to where we don't do this to ourselves again, where we um, are at least respecting the things about our life support system that need to be maintained, need to be sustained in a way that allow us to continue to survive and thrive. Yeah. I mean, I I did just sort of in the context of of looking back uh, on Earth from space, I did did want to ask you about your your spacewalk. Yeah. Did that hammer at home even more? The fact that effectively there was nothing between you and, and planet Earth. You're, you're literally you're in space, but there's nothing between you and Earth. Because you, like you saw lightning storms and all sorts of things, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, um, there. You know, the whole the whole space travel thing. You know, <laughs> traveling to and from space on a space shuttle or a Soyuz or you know whatever spacecraft you're in. You know, even living and working in space for even a short period of time on a space station or another space. I mean, that's a pretty complex thing to do. It's a pretty surreal thing. You know, I mean, I'm so thankful for the pictures and videos now, right? Yep. You actually did that. You know, I'm still <laughs> impinging myself, right? Cause it's so hard to believe that that's something that you 
you know, that I could have done. And then what takes it up a notch is going out in your own little personal spaceship, right? The spacesuit, um, which I am hugely thankful to, you know, my friends at ILC Dover, the spacesuit company. I mean, those people know how to make it, you know, make it happen. And to go out and crawl around the outside of the space station to be tethered, you know, very deliberately tethered, you know, there's this diligence and deliberateness that I think is heightened when you're out like that. And yeah, to know that this, like this outfit that you have on, um, this, this small visor that's your view to all of it is all that's between you and that, you know, pretty deadly vacuum of space and that, you know, that planet that's 300 miles below you. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and it does, you know, there's from the, from the station or from, um, you know, your, your spaceship to and from space, you're seeing these things on earth. You know, you mentioned the lightning strikes, um, that, that we see the storms, these patterns of things on the planet. And I think those were the things that really made me understand this, like this overall interconnectivity of everything on earth, right? You know, we, we tend to, on a daily basis, like, oh, you know, I'm here in Florida and my little, you know, city of St. Petersburg and there's a thunderstorm comes over and okay. Yeah. And then when it's gone, I was like, oh, it's gone. You know, I, I think about it from my own, like in this place perspective and man, you look at that from from space through the window, and it's like these tentacles of light just wrapping around the planet. This motion of what looks like, I mean, in science class, what, what they showed us of like neurons firing in a brain, like this electrical activity just moving and wrapping around the planet to where you just see it disappear across the horizon. And you're like, oh my gosh, nothing is ever in just one place it's all transporting itself in one way or another, you know, around the whole planet. And whether it makes it, you know, like full circle, something about it is rippling again out around the whole world to, you know, have some effect in one way or another. It's so cool to see that. It must have been really cool. Yeah. I also think you, you were also yeah. really lucky to have uh, flown in the shuttle. I mean, that's sort of, I think, is my own personal favorite era of, of uh, crewed space flight. Um, you think of all the all the amazing things that were done on the shuttle, and all all, all those uh, amazing people who, who who worked on it. You know, the, the launch of Hubble and, yeah. and and things like that. Um, but I was also going to ask ask you. So, well, first of all, I wanted to ask like, do you do you have do you have fond memories of of, of the shuttle and where you sad to see it go? But also, with regard to people now talking about reusable spacecraft and, and getting away from this disposable Soyuz, do, do, do you ever look back and go, but but the shuttle was reusable. We had a reusable. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I, I absolutely um, there. Well, you know, I was I was a, a person of the shuttle time too, right? I mean, my pre-astronaut days were at Kennedy Space Center, working as a NASA engineer on the space shuttle program, and. I mean, honestly, that's where space really came to life for me, as I watched that program that program coming to life, you know, when I was in high school and, and then when I was graduating college, um, 
the program was getting back to flight after the Challenger accident. And this whole group of young engineers came into Kennedy Space Center to, you know, to start working on the program again. And oh my gosh, everything from the, I mean, the people that work there that still work there. I mean, they honestly, they were such a wonderful group of people to work with. And especially as a young engineer to see this, this, this just mass of people that honestly believe the care and feeding of those spacecraft were their responsibility. I mean, like they, it was them. And, um, and then one, you know, when I had the opportunity to fly on it, I was like so appreciative of that because I knew how, you know, those people put themselves into that vehicle and a vehicle that, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I look forward to the day when we have something that compares to it again. And and I mean, this was a spacecraft, you know, this was a spacecraft that was, in all honesty, was built by committee, right? Everybody wanted it to do everything, you know, cargo, people, build space stations, deploy satellites, be a laboratory itself, all of it. And it did it. <laughs> it did it. You know, in the grand scheme of things, it did it really, really well. And yeah, the only thing that wasn't reusable of the space shuttle was the external tank. And even during the time of the program, and, you know, now you see it happening again, wanting to um, use pieces of that. I mean, there were people that were like, hey, we can make space hotels out of the external tank. We don't have to drop it back and, and not reuse it again. And so these concepts have been out there and it's been in work for a long time. Um, I'm really excited to see what's going on now with, you know, the ideas of reusable spacecraft and, you know, and what we're going to do and perhaps getting the cost of that down and, and hopefully improving the overall safety over time as we should of, of anything we do in space. But, oh my gosh, we should be celebrating all the time, (laughs) you know, what the space shuttle program did for us. And, and I look forward to the day where, where astronauts and people flying in space will, when they come back to Earth, that they'll hear that little chirp on the runway, (laughs) right? That little land on a runway thing. I think, you know, that's the way humans should be coming back to Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, actually, that that sort of brings me on to to something else I wanted to ask you, because most of the time, whenever I'm speaking to an astronaut and and I ask them um, about what's going on now with companies like SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and space tourism, they're quite generally quite positive because it's the private sector is getting involved and it's 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 you know advancing the technology and people are flying to space um potentially more frequently but it, it is i wanted to ask your opinion to see if you thought differently with regard to your opinions on climate change and the need you know does it get to the point where we have to sort of say you're not allowed to do space tourism. It's 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 too it's too it's too polluting and, and it's not necessary. You know, I, I, just, I just wanted to, to, to sort of gauge your your opinion on on that aspect of it. Yeah, I don't know that I'd go that far. I think that you know, even what we're doing now with what you see is like what would I guess what would be considered you know some of these flights, even ones that are coming up in the next day or so, where it's um, you know the space tourism is the focus you know, at least in the media. Um, But underlying every single one of those flights is kind of a greater motivation, right? Um, How do we, you know, when you think about Bezos, I mean, ultimately it's like, how do we lift these industrial things off the planet, right? To a benign environment of space. And the one that stands out to me is like space-based solar power and 
so that we can lift all of these things off Earth so that we're not affecting the planet in the same way. I mean, that's going to take us launching things to space and learning how to do that. These little steps with the space tourism stuff is helping us do that. Um, and then in parallel, you've got companies and I know universities and research that's going on and how do we transform the fuels that are used? How do we um, make that more green and sustainable? And and things are happening with that right now. You know, I mean, Sierra Nevada Corporation and what they're doing with their Dream Chaser, they're trying to incorporate right off the bat, you know, a green um, propulsion platform to, to make that happen. And it's going to take a while, but I think also it's it's about getting to the point where we're doing more where the exploration of space is happening from space versus always having to lift off the earth to do it. And so all these things I think, um, I think are happening in parallel. I I get the, you know, I get that it's like, well, you know, why do we keep launching these things that might be doing is, you know, doing damage in the same way when we're trying to counteract it through the space program. But I think the return on investment is going to be in the favor of, um, of earth i really really um love your uh, uh positive um attitude with regard to it and your optimism because i, I think even just even just speaking to you has, has uh, made me feel a bit more sort of <laughs> upbeat about uh, the uh, the prospects of the future of the of the planet and and uh, humanity um and so i just wanted to uh, thanks th- thanks for coming on the podcast and and, and sharing your optimism and uh, good luck with the book when it comes out and uh, yeah thanks thanks again for speaking to me today yeah, thank you so much, and I, I appreciate your appreciation of, of of the 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 hope of the, the of the positive that's out there because I think, you know, that's one of the things I I really want people to walk away from in the book too is to, to find their hopefulness through the stories in space through the stories, of the folks I got to interview who are doing just incredible, work here every day to make these things, happen in a positive way for us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. Spotify.